You're listening to City Church Long Beach Sermons. Visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. Hi, welcome. Uh, So glad you're here. Uh, Wherever you are this morning, whoever you are, um, however you're dealing with this country and all the craziness and whatever you're grieving, whatever you're... Hi, Zoom folks. Um, if you're new, there's a camera here, and we have we are also on Zoom. Um, wherever you are, whatever's going on, if you're on Zoom, if you're here, however you're dealing with all the political craziness in our world, whatever you need, uh, whatever your pronouns are, um, you're welcome here. I'm Tiger. I'm part of the leadership team. I'm they them. <laughs> wow. I feel welcome. Um, <laughs> if you're new, we're really glad you're here. And um, one of the things I really got to tell you about is the restrooms. So if you go in and go up the stairs, there's a restroom right there. You can go through the auditorium. There's a restroom in the front lobby. And then we have a couple restrooms over here that are dead bolted open. So if you need to use those, go. They'll be dead bolted open go in, lock it. When you leave, unlock it, come out, and then relock it so it's also open for the next person. Um, Oh, children, Uh, I would like to pray for our children. If you have a child here, feel free to reach out, hold them, put a hand on their heart. If you have a child inside that you are nurturing, you may put a hand on your own heart. Um, You may hold close in your heart any children in your lives or the children that go to school here. So now let us pray. Good morning, God. We thank you for children. Um, Sometimes I don't understand exactly your plan for why children are the way they are, but uh, we trust you. And uh, may we always continue to trust you and not ask why, but ask how and what. How do we do this and what do we do now? Help us to love the children in our lives. I pray a special blessing on the parents and I pray that you give them extra patience and wherewithal. I pray a special blessing on all the children. May they feel loved and may they find someone to love them if they don't currently feel loved. And I pray a blessing on those inner children we have Um, inside of us, and may we learn to parent them better and better every day as well. Thank you for all of your grace. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the children's ministry. Thank you for the children. Thank you for this um, school that we are at and all the children, teachers, parents represented here. And I pray that you help us to be your children, that you help us to follow you and love you and be vulnerable enough to feel your love and strong enough to love others with compassion. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the children may go to the Sunday School activities. And I would like to welcome Brenna Rubio. I sneaked up on you, sorry. That was so scary. Welcome. Whoa. She is a co-pastor and a magician. 
Yeah, it took me, I was like, oh shoot, I'm gonna scare them now. Darn it. Hey guys, I am, I'm Brenna Rubio, co-pastor here at City Church, and I know that our, um, I'm hoping our co-pastor Bill White is not watching this morning, that he is taking a true vacation, uh, because we all need that sometimes, right? Uh, but I know that Bill would be very sad that he's not here saying good morning to all of you as well. Um, so it is, it's really good to be here with everyone. Hey, as our kids have walked off, I just want to take this moment just to let everybody know we are hoping to split into some different kind of age groups with our kids soon. So just I'm just throwing it out there as we get started. We are looking for some more people who might like to help with our kids on a Sunday morning, whether it's like you like cuddling babies. So the zero to three, like working in the nursery uh, occasionally, like once a month or being a playground monitor once a month when the kids are out playing. Those are two areas where we could use some help. So just throwing it out there. Okay, so as we come together this morning into, uh, we've been in the series that we are calling Complicated Jesus, because we're just acknowledging that Jesus is sometimes actually a complicated figure, and our feelings towards Jesus and in relationship with Jesus are sometimes kind of complicated too, um, because, well, relationships are messy, right? We, we do actually have complicated emotions and feelings that we bring into all our relationships. So why would the relationship with Jesus be any different? As we come into our time together this morning, uh, I was just back there and I was thinking, there's this question that we often ask at the beginning of a group time, you know, say we're going to have a book group or a leadership group or anything. A, a question that we often start the group with is, hey, I'd love to go around and Give everyone a minute to share what version of themselves they're bringing today. Like, is it a happy version? Is it a sad version? You know, uh, a really, you know, actually kind of like worried version or kind of like frantically energetic, focused. I mean, there are all sorts of different versions of ourselves that might come into any situation. And sometimes it's just really good to know you know, from the outset, as you start talking with someone, like what version of themselves is showing up? So you're not surprised if they all of a sudden break into tears, you know, in the middle of the meeting, because, you know, they were a sad version of themselves today. And okay, we, we kind of know where that's coming from. So I just, you know, you might think for yourselves, you know, what version of yourself is showing up here this morning? And I actually just want to give you a minute. Um, we're going to take a couple, couple breaths. And then there's an invitation if you'd like to. You don't have to. If you're an introvert and you're like, you're killing me, Brenna. Um, but there'll be an invitation in a moment that you could actually turn to a neighbor and say, this is, you know, this is the version of myself. Just a couple words, you know, emotion type words. If you're on Zoom, you could put it in the chat. What version of yourself are you bringing to the service today? But let's go ahead and we're just going to take a breath or two as we start our time together. And just to check in with your own heart. What version of yourself is at the service today? Breathing in and out. Breathing in and out. If you'd like to, either in the chat in Zoom or, or here, you could turn to someone next to you and just share a word or two, what version of yourself has come into the service today.
this online if you want to write them out. <laughs> All right, I'm going to pull it back together here. I was just informed by Joe that our friend Bill White has decided to include service in his vacation. And so that's okay, Bill, we love you. And while we sort of wish you rest, we're glad you're here. <laughs> uh, I hope it was good just to take a minute and to know, you know that you get to be your full self here. You get to bring whatever version of yourself you're showing up as today, that it is welcome in this space. For me, it might be helpful for you to know that I'm coming in and the word that I would use to describe this version of myself is, is tender. Like tender in a way where, you know, you have some spaces that are a little feeling a little raw. And so you've got to be a little careful, a little gentle with those spaces. Uh, and, you know, I, I think I'm feeling that way for a lot of different reasons. Definitely some of them are, are personal. It was kind of a longer, harder week. And so I'm a little tired and, you know, just kind of aware of some of my limitations. So I'm feeling some of that tenderness. And some of it is, it's, it's, what Tiger was praying about, it's, it's our social stuff, right? Where I'm coming in just aware of just how much is going on in, around, in the world around us that is just terrifying and infuriating and heartbreaking. And I feel tender about that. And so I'm bringing all that in to my being up here this morning as we get into a complicated Jesus story. And the story that I'm bringing this kind of tender energy into today is the story of Jesus going into the temple and getting so angry that he starts flipping tables upside down. I mean, this is like the cafeteria food fight, you know, on crack, right? I mean, this is just like Jesus just going in and I mean, he is throwing stuff around. And that's the story that we're looking at today. Uh, and and it's a complicated Jesus story because some of us love that story and some of us hate it. Like it brings up really visceral negative reactions for us. And so some of us love that story. And I will admit, I, I tend to lean towards that side because it seems to show us a God who cares so much about justice that he's willing to actually get in there and do something, right? He's not just like a little grumpy about justice not just like posting on social media, upset about injustice, but like actually gonna show up and do something and help people kind of version of Jesus, a God who cares that much and is really just flipping the entire social order and just saying like, no, you've got it wrong and I'm gonna set it right. So there's this kind of t-shirt saying, it's part of the happy givers, stop trying to sit at the tables that Jesus flipped right? This sense of just like, yeah, let's, let's follow that kind of God. Let's be that kind of Christian. And, and some of us love this story because it seems to be a story that has something for us, giving us some information about what, what it looks like to be angry well, to kind of redeem our anger. And, and some of us are in groups where we have traditionally been told, don't be angry. You know, that there are like stereotypes. If we were to show like the least hint 
of anger, all of a sudden we're kind of like painted with broad brushes of like, oh, that angry, out of control person. Like we're not allowed to be angry about things. That there's always this tone policing and, and you know, just this sort of like, oh, you know, you could say that in a more gentle way. Right? It's fine if you think things are wrong, but you could say so respectfully. Right? And, and so there's this sense of redeeming anger that can feel really validating and, and hopeful for some of us. But I also really understand why it's a very scary story for some other people. It's a story that some of us actually really, really don't like because it seems to show us a God who's angry. And anger has been a fear inspiring emotion in our lives because we have seen people we're gonna have some really awesome noises over here this morning because there's a game that the kids are playing and this is all normal just so we know this is what we do um and they're actually what they're doing is actually very similar to what we're gonna be talking about this morning um but so some of us are very fearful because there have been people in our lives who've been out of control with their anger and have used their anger to exploit us to abuse us, to hurt us and push us down. Um, and that's scary. And I, I want to be really tender to that this morning. That if those are the emotions that you bring into this story, they're valid. I get where they're coming from. And we want to just honor that this morning. And it's more than just the personal. We see it play out you know, in all sorts of ways. You see you know, Christians being jerks online because Jesus flipped some tables. I mean, such a trite way to use that, right? And it's used in completely untrite sort of ways. I didn't realize that until I was doing, you know, some kind of background work getting ready for this. But this story was actually used for, by some people as a justification for the January 6th insurrection. Man, we're going to go in and clear out the temple, just like Jesus did. That should give us pause about this story and how it can be abused, right? Man, that is serious stuff. Something for us to pay attention to in a world where just yesterday, 10 people died in Buffalo, New York, because someone decided that their violence was justified, that they had this calling, this, I don't know if there was religious justification used in that particular instance, but I know it all flows from the same tree that sort of hate, that sort of racialized violence. So uh, uh, someone who used to be more of a leader in the evangelical community uh, and now is somewhat more of a um, prophetic kind of voice, his name is Phil Vischer. He has this quote that I read this week and, and it really just made me think, and I don't think I agree with it entirely and we're gonna get into that, but it still made me think and there, there was a question in there that I still found really helpful. His, his quote is this, if table flipping Jesus is our favorite Jesus, we've lost the plot. If Pharisee insulting Jesus is our favorite Jesus, we've lost the plot. If the Jesus who out of love for others laid down his rights and picked up his cross and called his followers to do the same, isn't the Jesus we're devoted to, we've lost the plot. So again, I, I actually, we're gonna come back to this at the end because I'm not sure I completely agree, but I thought it was a great question. How does this story fit into the larger plot of who Jesus is and what he was about and what he's inviting us to be about, who he's inviting us to become? And so that's, 
That's the question that we're digging into today. Our friend Jorge Salmaron is going to come up and read this complicated story for us. Would you welcome Jorge? And if you would like to stand, for those of you who are here in person, as Jorge reads, uh, and on Zoom, you guys do whatever feels comfortable. All right. The scripture for today is out of Matthew chapter 21, verse 12 through 15. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called the house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. When the, when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting at the temple courts, Osana to the son of God, to the son of David, they're indignant. Mm -hmm. People of God, this is the word of God. Go ahead and be seated. Jorge, thank you. So this idea that if this is our favorite Jesus, we've lost the plot. Part of where I think Phil Vischer and others, when they, they say this, what they're really calling out is part of the reason this story stands out to us, part of the reason it gets you know put into artwork and, and, and just kind of becomes such a potent symbol for so many of us is, is actually because it's out of character. Like there's this sense of, it's because it's unusual that we notice. Like someone who's generally very soft-spoken, you know, and just kind of always nice and pleasant, all of a sudden they just like gear up, like you notice. Versus the person who's yelling all the time, they yell again, okay, whatever, right? It's just, it's, it's within character. This is kind of out of character for Jesus. And that's part of the reason that we notice because Jesus' everyday behavior and advocacy was always towards peacemaking, right? Think of so many, all the Jesus stories you know, right? Like, blessed are the peacemakers. This is the thrust, right? Like this is, yeah, and those who are meek and humble, let the little children come to me. Jesus just touching people and healing them. And this is the Jesus that we generally think about and are talking about. Now, that's not to say that Jesus was a pushover. Uh, we can definitely find examples of Jesus throwing some flames verbally, right? You know, like telling people, like, you know, you're a brood of vipers. Yeah, behind me, Satan. Um, this Jesus, by the way, does not help me very much when I'm trying to teach my kids not to call names. And I'm like, you know, let's talk about the behavior, not the person. Okay, this Jesus does not help me. I don't quite know what to do with that. I'm just being honest. Okay, so Jesus definitely, he's, he's not a pushover. He says what he thinks. People know what he stands for. They, they know what he's about. But this story of Jesus going in and getting so angry that he starts flipping tables around. I mean, just causing this huge physical scene. It's the only one like it. The only place where we see more an example of like physical violence, the anger taking physical form. There is one possible exception to that. And what I find so interesting about it is it's like right after this, it's like Jesus clears the temple and then he goes and he like gets mad at a tree and curses it and kills it. It's a weird story. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. Scripture is weird. 
sometimes. And I read that and I see the sequence and there's part of me that's kind of like, hey, Jesus, you okay? You having a bad day? Need a snack? Maybe we need a nap. We a little hangry? I mean, they're right next to each other. You can't help but ask a few questions about the timing. Okay, so that's our one possible exception. But generally speaking, right, like this is this is Jesus being with his body, angry. Now, one thing that I actually, as I just deal with the reality of that and I grapple with it, this exceptional story, um, sometimes in the pictures, the artistic representations of that you see in this story, and I'm gonna ask if anybody's seen this, Jesus has a whip in his hands. Has anyone seen those pictures? Yeah, I'm seeing a few of the hands right. Jesus has a whip. And if that's not like a scary picture, right? Jesus with a whip. If that's not something when we see those images that we can imagine how people think it justifies them picking up a weapon. Okay, so here's something that's really important for me to notice. There's the story is in I think all the gospels, at least three, but I think it was all four. Um, there's only one version that includes the whip as a detail in the story, Jesus picking up the whip. And this is what it says. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. All, both sheep and cattle. Not all the people, not all Jesus taking the whip and going and beating people, all using, Jesus is using a tool to take the animals who, I mean, he's upset that they're there, he's upset about how they're being used, and to drive the animals out of the temple spaces. Maybe it's just me, but that feels like an important detail to notice as we think about this Jesus who is being angry in a physical way. He's still not hitting people. I wanna take notice of that. So, does this story of Jesus fit into the larger stream? It doesn't seem to fit, you know, like, okay, this is this is a sort of out of characteristic, you know, experience, you know, to, to see Jesus acting like this. Does it fit into the overall theme of how scripture talks about God in anger? It kind of does. Because in scripture, we do see a God who can be angry, but but this is one of the consistent phrases that we see that we have a God who is slow to anger. Not never angry, but slow to anger. You, O oh Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So there's a sense of, yeah, the overall picture is just like we see in Jesus' life. It's love, graciousness, compassion, peacemaking, always wanting to move towards restoration and forgiveness. And sometimes anger will be an appropriate part of that picture. And so we see that again, going into the, the New Testament, right? That this is the picture of what it means to grow more and more into the image of God planted in us, to become more and more like Jesus. It doesn't mean never getting angry, which again, some of us need to hear. We need to know how anger gets redeemed. It doesn't mean that we never get to be angry. Anger is a really human emotion. Kind of nice to know that Jesus experienced it too. But we can be angry and we can be wise at the same time. So in James, we see again that, hey, slow to speak, slow to anger. That's the call. Or in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and don't sin. 
be angry and do it well. Do it in ways that actually lead towards wholeness. A therapist whose writings I've really been uh, enjoying lately, Andy Kolber, she calls it tending to our anger. And maybe especially because I am feeling tender this morning. And it's that same word, right? Tending to our anger. What if we were tender towards our anger? What she says is this, we have to learn how to tend to anger. It goes without saying that just because we're feeling incredibly fiery, it doesn't mean it's okay to hurt others. It's not. Yet anger is a vital emotion because it allows us to mobilize in order to set boundaries, use our voice, take up space, and or reclaim what was stolen. Our sacred anger is a gift that helps us move towards wholeness. And I'm going to let you sit with that for a second. Sit with that phrase, sacred anger. Is that how you feel about your anger? Does it feel like a holy force in your life? A lot of us haven't received a whole lot of great modeling around anger and how to hold it well, how to tend to it, how to almost parent this deep, raw stuff inside of ourselves. You know, as I've had plenty of, you know, opportunities over this last week to, you know, notice anger in my children because, you know, that's, that's life and they are very raw little humans at the moment. And when you tend to their anger, what you notice is, hey, they may not be expressing it super well, but often like there's what they are concerned about matters, right? That if I could listen to like what they're trying to tell me beyond the method of delivery, there's actually often a lot of wisdom there, a lot that I, I actually want to honor as a parent. Like what if we actually learned how to do that with our own anger, not to you know, either have the toddler version of it that's uncontrolled and just kind of going all over the place all the time, whoever it should hurt, but also not to have this over-controlled version of it where we fear it, where we think we just have to squash it down. I was actually talking with my therapist earlier this week and I was talking about an instance of my own anger. And, you know, as I was processing it with her, I said something to the effect of, yeah, it's not very fair of me to feel angry about that, is it? You know, like I'm not being fair to the other person. And she kind of listened. She was like, well, I don't know about the question of fairness, but it sure sounds human. And that was helpful, right? I mean, how I respond to my anger, I hope that's fair. I hope it's kind. I hope it's compassionate, all those things, right? But the actual experience, my anger, there's no necess necessity that it be fair. It just is. It just is, and I can tend it. I can be gentle, and I can choose. I can choose the best way to express it. And sometimes it might look like a very gentle expression, and sometimes it might actually look like anger. So what do we do with this particular instance of Jesus saying, yeah, you are going to see my anger you're gonna see it. It's gonna be physical, it's gonna be disruptive, it's gonna be loud, it's gonna make some people uncomfortable. How do we understand that and how I actually would say, man, it totally fits in the larger plot line. I don't wanna lose that. 
that the reason that he was angry, it's not like he was just making a mistake. It actually completely fits the plot line. So here are three clues in the text that we get to pay attention to, to help us understand where Jesus' anger was coming from and where sometimes we're gonna feel angry too. And it actually completely fits the plot line. So the first part is we think about what's actually happening. What is actually going on that he is calling out and saying no. And it's about these animals, right? So there are always gonna be animals involved in temple practice because there's ritual sacrifice involved in temple practice. It's just part of the worship experience. But what Jesus is particularly objecting to is that with the temple in Jerusalem, some people have traveled from a long, long, long ways away. And when you're traveling from a super long distance, it doesn't make so much sense to bring your animals with you right? It's going to slow you down. You're going to have to take care of them, feed them along the way, all that kind of stuff. It's going to make more sense for you to travel light and buy your animals for your ritual sacrifice when you get there. And you have no other options once you get there, right? Like you're kind of stuck. And so what Jesus is saying, like, hey, you're taking advantage of these poor people. They've traveled from a long distance to come here into worship. And now in a couple different directions, there's sort of temple taxes that are being added on, probably because people are coming, they have different currencies. So there's kind of like exchange rates being abused. There's the sense of, he calls them a den of robbers. You're being exploitative in how you exercise this. It's not just like, you know, hey, you know, like whatever, we'll just exchange money and we don't need to make a profit because it's a service so that you can worship. It's like, no, they're working to make a profit in, a, in an unfair sort of situation. And so he's saying you're, he's calling out exploitation and saying, this is not of God. This is not what a temple is for. You are turning a temple into a den of robbers. And that does, Jesus calling that out, that fits the plot line. Then there's where it's actually happening. Because the particular, the, the temple is divided into some different areas. And different groups of people are allowed into different areas of the temple. Which, in our context, probably we would tend to look at and go like, okay, there feels like some segregation. You know, that there's a courtyard for the women versus a courtyard for the men versus the courtyard for the gentles, the Gentiles. Um, okay, so that's importing our standards on it. But in that particular time, at least provision is being made for everyone to have a worship experience, right? Men and women get to come and to worship. Jews and Gentiles get to come and get to worship. And so it's meant as a gesture of inclusion. But what's happening in this particular situation is that all of this trading and exploitation is happening in a particular spot in the temple. It's happening in the court of the Gentiles. So when Jesus says, hey, it was meant to be a house of prayer, and that's what he calls out, the actual passage it goes back to, it was a house of prayer for all nations. That's kind of the next part of the sentence. And it's what he doesn't say out loud, but everybody knows is there. It's not just that this was meant to be a house of prayer. It was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. It was supposed to be an inclusive space. And by you being here, 
and practicing your exploitation, your unfair trading practices right here, you're crowding out the Gentiles from their space of worship. They're not a, they don't have room. So he's actually, what he's doing is he's calling out exclusion. He's calling out ways that some people are being pushed away and not allowed into the house of God. And yeah, doesn't that fit the plot line of our God who's always about inclusion? And the third clue that we get to look at in the text, I think is my favorite. And for some reason, again, different versions show different details. This, this particular clue is only in the Matthew version that we read this morning. And it's about what happens after Jesus clears the temple. What happens after Jesus flips all the tables? Well, there are two groups of people. There are people with power, and there are people without power. The people without power that we see in the story, the blind and the lame, they're overjoyed. And they look at Jesus and they say, yes, you're who I want to come to. You're who I want to be close to. And so they come to him and they're accepted and they're healed. And the little children start celebrating. They know this is a good thing. And they're just, yeah, this is, this is God showing up for us. The people here over here on the not having power side, man, they know this is good. And the powerful, they're indignant. They're disturbed because they're the ones who are getting messed with. They're the ones whose tables are getting flipped. But this has always been the plot line. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he said, yet yeah, this is what I'm about. I do center the marginalized. I do include the excluded. We are about lifting up the oppressed. In Luke 4, this is his first kind of public act of ministry. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and declare the year of the Lord's favor. This has always been the plot line. And it's good to remember this actually does fit. So what does it mean for us this morning? I want to go back again to that quote of Phil Vischer's. And I think the first question that we really have to wrestle through is, which character are we in the story? Are you one of the characters that Jesus is flipping the table for? He's inviting you to rise up. Are you one of the characters that he's correcting and inviting to be humble? Because Phil Vischer, you know, I don't know his whole story. Don't know his whole story. Um, some of you, how many here are familiar with VeggieTales? Anybody? Yeah, VeggieTales, right? Okay, Phil Vischer is one of the VeggieTale guys. Okay, he's one of the co-creators. There you go. Now I've, we've made it all clear, right? So, you know, VeggieTales, Veggie, yeah, okay. So we're talking about someone who at a certain point in his life and career has been like deep in the heart of white evangelical Christianity. So successful in that community. Um, 
and is currently more at the outskirts of it, more of a voice in the wilderness for that particular community. But I think what I want to suggest is that his social location as a white man whose formation has been in the evangelical community, when he says these words about not making table flipping Jesus your favorite Jesus, I think he's speaking to the people in power, right? He's saying, it's not for you to make table flipping Jesus your favorite. Because if you, those of you in power, think that Jesus is inviting you to pick up your whip instead of your cross, you got it all wrong. That's not the message of this story for you. In the spaces of your privilege, the message is about getting up and admitting, yeah, oh, I've been sitting at the table of injustice and I'm gonna help Jesus flip it. I'm gonna invite some other people to the table. I'm gonna stop hogging all the space, right? That is the message in, in the spaces in our lives where we have been close to power. And that can be in the political sense, definitely, right? Thinking about where am I privileged and whose who's other voices in the community should I be listening to? Because sometimes we don't even know our own privilege until we start getting to know and talking to some other people who've grown up with very different experiences, who are located very differently socially. And so, man, in our places of privilege, we need to listen and admit Jesus' call in our life is going to be towards humbling. It's picking up a cross, not a whip. That can also be in our relationships, right? Because some of us could say, hey, in the political sense, perhaps, you know, we, we're, we're not towards the center of power. We feel more marginalized. And yet there may be spaces in our personal lives where maybe we do experience some power. You know, we're, we're in a more traditional relationship and we feel like, the one who has status, power, physical size, or economic privilege on our sides, on our side. Okay, how are you going to be gentle? How are you going to not feed into the paradigms of power and privilege? Those are the places where we experience power and privilege. But in those spaces where You've experienced oppression, you've experienced abuse, you've experienced marginalization and exclusion. I just want to say this morning, I think it is 100% appropriate if this is one of your favorite stories, if you love this Jesus, because those kids did when they started dancing and singing after he flipped the tables. And the people who came to Jesus for healing, they were lame and they were blind. This was absolutely the Jesus that they needed, and he showed up for them. See, the thing is, what Phil Vischer might not realize he's doing is he says, no, 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 this doesn't fit the plot line, is he's actually centering the experience of the powerful. He's sort of implying that this is, the, well, this is what's true for everybody. What's true for him, him as someone who privileged experience has to be true for everybody else. And so we have to be able to listen to those words and say, no, that's true over there. But if, I'm, if I've experienced more marginalization in my life, that's, that's not going to be a true word for me. That's actually not the call of Christ in this area of my life. Here, 
Jesus is flipping tables on my behalf. Jesus thinks my anger is completely appropriate. Jesus thinks I should not be excluded. Jesus thinks I should not be marginalized. Jesus is at work, and we get to be at work too. And I don't always know what that looks like, right? Like that's, those are questions of wisdom. What does it mean to tend to our anger well and in holy ways in those areas? I will tell you that whether or not we make people uncomfortable is not a good test. Other people's comfort is not a good test. Somebody saying, you know, your tone of voice offended me is not a good test. Change never happens without people becoming uncomfortable. And we don't have to own all that. Some tables need flipping. And we actually get to claim that from the story. So that's, to me, as I, as I wrap it up, that's the plot line. There is this sense of, OK, let's tend to our anger with wisdom. And tending to our anger means not ignoring it, not blindly following it, but acknowledging it and making choices about what's going to lead towards wholeness and love. And we acknowledge that, yeah, sometimes the plot line is that joining Jesus means upending tables. It means being disruptive if that's what it takes to create a more just and loving world. I want to close with a, a word of exhortation from Bernice King, the daughter of MLK and, and an activist in her own right. And this is her summary that I just found so much wisdom in. Family hate has never driven out hate. Guard your heart. Take care with your energy. Be part of love-centered strategic efforts. Don't become unjust in your approach to injustice. Have an ultimate goal that steadies you. Mine is creating the beloved community. Our friend Emma Roy.